This is getting out of hand. Now there are two of them. Where's your innovation, huh? Sequels suck. Do the same thing. Everyone's happy. It's all about the money, boys! Here we go again. Unhand the tale. The great Aslan himself gave me this tale, and no one, repeat, no one touches the tale. Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of Franchise Fatigue. This is a show where we explore film series one movie at a time. I am your host, James Hamrick, and as always, I am joined with my co-host, Gabe Green. What's going on, man? I'm doing pretty well. I'm feeling something like r- really weird at the back of my throat, so I might be, be coughing a lot throughout this recording. Hopefully I'll be able to edit all the coughs out. I feel like either I'm going to have a really bad cold together, uh, cold tomorrow, or else it's going to all go away, but uh, we'll see. Hopefully I can my, keep my voice for the next hour, because that's all it's going to take to talk about this movie anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to say, we won't we won't need anything too passionate from you in this episode. Yeah. Um, so we, this week we complete uh, our journey into Narnia with the third film in the uh, Chronicles of Narnia series, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And man, it... it don't understand how this series only got three adaptations that's just uh this uh, this movie is why well maybe <laughs> yeah uh so yeah we are finishing up this series but before we begin our discussion on that i want to ask you guys if you enjoy the show to please take a moment to go over to itunes and leave us a five-star review uh that would be very helpful we'd really appreciate it and also like us on facebook so you can keep uh keep up to date with all the latest episodes and whatnot and before you get our main discussion of the film james why don't you tell us a little bit about the uh, behind the scenes story of this film Sure. And so Michael Apted, who uh, who had just directed the film Amazing Grace, which was also produced by Walden Media, was hired to direct the third film in June of 20, uh, 2007. Uh, filming for Prince Caspian was actually still in full swing at that time. Um, the initial plan for Don Treader uh, was for it to be shot immediately after Caspian wrapped. Uh, the original shooting date uh, was going to be January of 2008 for a May of 2009 release date. Uh, so it's just going to be a year after Prince Caspian is going to be coming out. Maybe, you know, try to mimic that Lord of the Rings strike while the iron's hot hit him yearly. Um, but Prince Caspian turned out to be much uh, a much more difficult film to make than expected. Uh, so it caused the filming date to be pushed back to October 2008 for a May 2010 release date. Uh, Apted started uh, scouting locations all around the world. They were planning to film in locations like Malta, Prague, and Iceland. Um, but following Prince Caspian's surprisingly poor box office performance, the, the film's budget was just slashed. So they opted to do a mainly studio shoot in uh, Baja, Mexico. But due to safety concerns, like pretty much the escalating drug war in Mexico at the time, uh, they decided to move production to Australia. Uh, Disney wanted to drastically reduce the budget after Caspian. Um, apparently they were wanting somewhere around a hundred million dollar budget reportedly. Um, but Walden wanted 140 million. Uh, this caused Disney to drop the series. So Walden then partnered with 20th Century Fox, which ironically is now Disney, uh, to produce the film. Um, and of course, if all of that wasn't enough, there was also a writer strike going on in 2007-2008. So Christopher Marcus and Stephen McFeely returned, uh, returned from the previous two films to write the first uh, few drafts for this film. Uh, they were then let go, and Stephen Knight, who weirdly just uh, wrote and directed that film uh, Serenity with Matthew McConaughey and Anne Hathaway that everyone's buzzing about, hmm. he was brought on to write it. And that, then 
uh, Richard Lagravenese came on, and shortly after that, Michael Petroni was announced as the writer. Uh, the final credited writers are Marcus and McFeely and Petroni, so who knows what uh, what came from who. And this this movie does, really does feel like it had you know five-plus writers. One of the big difficulties in adapting this film is the way that the the, the book, The Voyage of the Don Treader, has very little plot. It's very much a very an episodic series of adventures. They go to this island, they have these adventures, this you know these character moments, things happen, then they move to the next island. It's very very sequential. There's no real driving momentum. There's a, uh, some quotes from Michael Apted. He said, uh, "I think in this case it was clear from the minute I read it that we would have a problem dramatizing because there's no real forward motion to it. It's full of wonderful scenes that are great to read to the children in bed at night because you you can read a chapter, forget about it, and do the next chapter. But for a movie, that's disastrous." And then another quote he said, "We did try to be totally faithful to the books, but it never worked. We were able to steal, as it were, from the from the between the two books, this and the Silver Chair, from a whole bit C.S. Lewis never bothered to write about, how the underworld was recruiting Narnia to attack Narnia." And I remember that quote, uh, which, you know, the book C.S. Lewis never bothered to write. It really got the fandom kind of. Uh, worried about what are they doing here um and reading that i get a strong feeling that michael apted never actually read the silver chair because that's not really what's happening there and part of me wonders if he actually even uh, i I, I, like listen listen to that first quote i don't think he actually had read this series at least maybe not since childhood uh before he was hired he doesn't he doesn't seem to be all that familiar with the story coming into it or with or with the rest of the series as he was developing this one yeah, it's. I mean, just his reading of it sounds like, or I guess the tone of that first quote sounds like, this was a surprise, like, oh, I'm going to read this for the film, and this is what I discovered. Uh, so, for casting, uh, Georgie Henley, Skander Keynes, and Ben Barnes, now sporting a British accent, uh, returned from Prince Caspian as the leads. Uh, Anna Popowell, William Mosley, and Tilda Swinton uh, all had small cameos, uh, mostly in those dreamlike sequences and the witch's green smoke and stuff. Um, Apted didn't like Eddie Izzard's take on Reaper Cheap, so he was initially replaced by Bill Nighy. That would have been great. But the studio thought he sounded too old, so eventually the job of voicing the char- character went to Simon Pegg. That makes me really sad because I like Simon Pegg. I love Simon I Pegg. I really, really loved... I think he's good, but I actually kind of preferred Eddie Izzard's take. Like We will talk about that. <laughs> Yeah, we'll, we'll get there. Um, Will Poulter was cast as uh, Eustace Scrub. I will be honest right now, he's probably my favorite in the whole film. Yep. Um, Gary Sweet was cast and aged up to take on the ship's captain, Drinian. Uh, Shane Rangy once again returned to play yet another Minotaur, who looked decidedly less cool this time around, as Tavros. Billy Brown plays Koryakin, the magician. Uh, Bruce Spence and Terry Norris played Lords Roop and Byrne. Arthur Angel and Arabelle Morton played the father and daughter, um, Rince and Gale. Uh, Laura Brent was cast as a Liliandel, the star. And finally, uh, Douglas Gresham cameoed as a slave buyer on the Lone Islands. Uh, so filming eventually began in July of 2009 on location in Queensland uh, before moving to the Village Roadshow Studios where the majority was shot. Dante Spinotti, uh, who had shot several of Apted's previous films, uh, came on as director of photography. He's, he's probably best known uh, for uh, working with uh, Michael Mann as DP for many years. 
Uh, Apted consulted se- uh, several fellow directors like uh, Gore Verbinski from the Pirates of the Caribbean films or Peter Ware from Master and Commander about shooting like a ship-based film and both counseled against uh, counseled against shooting on the open water. That's what everyone says, you know, <laughs> don't shoot on the open water. So the, uh, the Dawn Treader set, like the ship itself, was built at the end of a pier in Morton Bay. It was on this, this gimbal that could... Uh, rotate you know it could you know repl- it could move to replicate you know the motion of the water but also rotate to keep with the sun all you know all throughout the day uh, it's a really cool looking thing like they, they built the, this full ship that's way out in the pier um like that, that's one thing i do love about this movie the, the dawn treader looks gorgeous oh yeah like if they were to do a new adaptation i'd be like guys let's just use that ship again it's pretty cool <laughs> Yeah, and uh, so fo- uh, following the release of Avatar and you know the big 3D boom that followed, uh, Fox made this decision to post-convert the film to 3D. I also remember this being a really worrying thing within the fandom. You know, this was uh, uh, the the really awful uh, post-conversion for Clash of the Titans was like in everyone's mind at the time. Bond movie composer David Arnold, who had worked with Apted since he had done uh, The World Is Not Enough, uh, was hired to replace Harry Gregson Williams for the film score. So yeah, following the rather disastrous reception to Prince Caspian, there was a really big push in the marketing to, and also you know within the production of the film itself, uh, to get the movie to try and match the magic and whimsy of uh, of the line the Wish in the Wardrobe, you know, after the much more dark and uh, gritty tone of Prince Caspian. I remember it was marketed with the tagline "Return to Magic," "Return to Wonder," "Return to Narnia." Like the trailers, like the, the graphics in between the shots were like all with this like snow, despite there be no, being no real snow in the movie. Um, the the title card was like very similar to the Land of the Wish in the Wardrobe, set against snowy mountains, the way the Land of the Wish in the Wardrobe's title card at the end of the trailer was. And I'm pretty convinced, like this the scene in the in the magician's with the magician's book. Where Lucy's like turning around and wondering at all the snow. I'm like 99% sure that was shot only for the trailers. So they can say, oh, look, it's Narnia. It's snowy magical. Remember you like this? And then ironically, they don't even reuse the music. Yeah, this movie's made me so cynical. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so finally, the film was released on December 10th, 2010, uh, which is right in uh, The Line of the Wish in the Wardrobe uh, slot alongside The Tourist and The Fighter. Um, so James, this was your first viewing of this movie. What did you think? I think we've already got a bit of a taste. Yeah, so, <laughs> what are your thoughts? So on social media, I've probably appeared to hate it a lot more than I actually do. I don't even really hate it. I just, it exists. It's a movie that happened. I, I feel like it, there's a lot of irony to me in their attempt at recapturing the magic. Cause I feel like this movie has very little, if any, like magic for me just as a viewer. Um, I really do like to think that I came to it with an open mind because often I I end up really enjoying films in, that are a part of series that I love despite lackluster critical reception. You know, if, if, if you at least get me on the world, which, you know, despite the fact that I'm not just over the moon in love with the previous two films, I still feel connected to a certain extent to to Narnia. And so I walked in pretty open-minded and just as it went on, I became more and more cynical about the movie. And, and I just, it, I don't know. There's, there's really not a lot (laughs) to say on, on how I feel about it. It's, you loved it. It feels enough like the previous two for me to like, be able to establish in my head. It's a part of it while losing the magic that I think the previous two still had. Yeah. Um, so I actually have a very long history with this movie. Uh, I, I first came into the Narnia fandom in 2009. I talked a little bit about this in the Prince Caspian review. 
But uh, you know, shortly after you know, reading all the books and like desperately going online to you know try and find any information, I found the Narnia web uh, forums. And that's, this would have been, uh, as I said, right in 2009, as you know, the production of Don Trey was in full swing. So I just kind of dove headfirst into all the production, the speculation, reading up on every name and every casting thing I remember. Um, yeah, so this was like a big fandom experience. It was the, also the, the first film that I followed, the, you know, where I closely followed the production. And honestly, it's despite the disappointment the film was, there's a huge special place in my heart for this movie just because of the wonderful year I had, you know, online with fellow fans, everyone passionate about it. You're just looking at every set photo, every leak, just and debating over it, pouring over it, and getting, you know, you know, worried about nothing and stupid things. All that, all that stuff kind of was just such a joyful experience. So my, my feelings on the film itself are so are weirdly mixed considering all that. So about the movie, I remember seeing it and I think I kind of phantom myself and convinced myself that I liked it. And, or maybe I actually did like it. I was younger. My tastes weren't nearly as evolved, but I did enjoy it. And slowly over the years, my estimations kind of gone lower and lower until I pretty, I haven't seen it in the last five years, but like the last thing I remember was like, yeah, I don't care about it. And so, yeah, th- this, this, um, this rewatch, uh, yeah, I'm pretty much at the same place. I, I just, I don't care much about this movie. There's so little to care yeah. about. It's almost too much effort to bring myself to like strongly dislike it. Like, it's, yeah. it's just so inoffensive in how mediocre it is. And, and yeah, it's like it's nice enough and charming enough to not for I can't dislike it, but the charm is so surface level. There's nothing to like either. <laughs> but also. The first thing I want to talk about at the gate is some of the like really bizarre technical issues I noticed. So, the first was the aspect ratio. In theaters, it was presented in the uh, you know the standard two point thirty nine by one, which is the widescreen format. Most movies are are, pre- are projected at that format, but on home video, it was released on a one point seven eight by one ratio, which is pretty much a full screen for for most norm for most TVs. Which it will just fill up the entire screen. There'll be no black bars, which is an odd choice. You know, it was obviously originally filmed at that, and then the the letter boxing was added in post production. But then, when you release it with the but the reason those letter boxing exists is because it it just looks more cinematic. So and so like right then and there, when a film is full screen, it just kind of looks cheap because you know we're used to most movies having that letter boxing, you know, that widescreen format. And so when 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 something is full screen, you you think it looks like like a TV show. But to add to that, I don't know if you noticed this, but uh, this one was obviously this one was shot digitally. The first two were shot on film. This one was shot digitally, but also, I feel like it was it was put whatever however it was put onto the the Blu-ray and the DVDs. I feel like it was done at a at a much higher frame rate. I don't I'm not even I don't even know how entirely how frame rates work electronically, like when you're dealing with like media like that. But there's it feels like there's a lot of motion smoothing there where there's there's no motion blur. Everything feels very. There's a, like a fluidity to the motion that we're used to seeing on TV with, a, you know, things with uh, films that, you know, TV shows that are shot on, on a much lower budget where uh, movies are projected at 24 frames per second and uh, TV shows are usually presented at a much higher frame rate. I don't know if this makes any sense to guys who are interested in this technical stuff, but what what, what happens is, is the film is full frame, is full screen, and it also looks like it has like motion smoothing on, so it looks really... It looks cheap. Ultimately, it look doesn't look like a movie. It doesn't feel cinematic. It ju- it just feels super cheap. And also, the color correction is terrible. Like there are some 
there are a lot of shots that just are like i don't even know if they're color corrected at all like the white balance is off like the skin tones are this muddy bluish color where they didn't they didn't fix the white balance i just it it's just right off the bat the first scene like this looks so cheap it's it looks like it looks like a tv show it's colored like a student film i don't know what was going on here but you know dante spinotti is obviously a talented uh cinematographer but something about this just everything about the cinematography i think is just just plain bad yeah that's that's something i really noticed um i mean like i remember again watching it with it was my sister and i who went through all three films remember after a certain point pretty early on i was like there's something about this that just feels cheap like i feel like i'm watching like an old school bbc show or something with maybe higher like picture quality but just like the way it's shot it it feels so unimaginative in in every aspect and there there are moments where like you said, like with the the weird motion smoothing going on, there are moments that really do feel like like made for TV stuff. Like whenever the camera gets right up at those really awkward close up angles and it's moving a little bit, it looks awful. And like in the scene where they're looking for Eustace and the the camera's low to the ground and it's it's like moving frantically from all the gold pieces as they search, it feels like. You and your friends just like got a, a video camera and started shaking it around on the ground and then threw it in a theater. It just, it feels, I don't feel like what I'm looking at on screen now was what I'm used to, which is stuff that's gone through all of these color correction and all of these filters to make it look cinematic. It feels like they just, they shot it and slapped it on there with little to no effort to make it feel cinematic or or uh, or polished yeah and, and this film was mostly shot handheld and the problem with that when you have motion smoothing on it every little movement of the camera is really pronounced so the the, the camera just looks jittery that just makes it look even yeah. more cheap and that's that's what gave me the student film vibe was uh was just how how much movement how much unnecessary and weird and jittery like you said like how much of that is noticeable, you know, because like it'll be there in other films, but you won't notice it just because of, you know, everything they, all of, all of the different ways they, uh, they affect it to create the final product. This is just, it feels like, you know, you and your buddy out there with a camera, just doing nothing. Yeah. And another criticism I have of the cinematography is that it's, it feels, I think I'm pretty sure it's mostly shot in fairly wide lenses. And like, I was noticing where, Nothing is out of focus. They, like everything is in focus. The characters are in focus. The whole background behind them is in focus. So it, the cinematography isn't guiding your eye. Like there's it, and also it, it feels like there was very little thought put into the composition behind the camera work. It just kind of points around. Sure, the characters are in frame, but the the lighting, the, the focus, none of it's none of it's uh you know guiding your eyes. It just it's a series of flat A shots and B shots. Is what it feels like. Yeah. And there's like a lot of weird shots where like characters will be cut in half or like just there's no sense. I don't know. It's just there's nothing about the cinematography that feels intentional, uh, which is odd with, you know, with, with a, a guy who's worked with Michael Mann. So I guess I would have to have to blame that most of that on Apted. Um, this would be his first film he shot digitally. Yeah, you know, right off the bat, before we even get to the story issues, the the, the, ch- the incredibly cheap looking cinematography really threw me off on this movie. <laughs> and right on the opening uh, opening uh, scene, I really got a re- uh, you know a sense of respect for how well Adamson introduces his characters. Like, think about the opening scenes for Prince Caspian and for Lion the Witch in the Wardrobe. Like both those sequences introduce us to all our main characters. You know, they they give us the family dynamic. 
there, you know, the, the conflicts, you know, even, you know, for how much as I, you know, for how much I hate Peter's character in Prince Caspian, it's a very, it, that sequence is very effective in showing us where he is, you know, where he is as a character. It, it's good storytelling, even if I don't like the story being told. Uh, here, the characters just sit there and tell us, this is how I'm feeling. And oh, why is Edmund going through Peter's arc from Prince Caspian? Or, Edmund, or even like it's so it's a weird amalgamation of Peter's arc from Caspian and his arc from the first one of like you replace in in Lion the Witch in the Wardrobe you're, you're just replacing him wanting to rule over Peter with him wanting to rule over Caspian like Caspian is the new Peter that he feels he's living under the shadow of it's yeah this is not where we left Edmund it's my same complaint with Peter the last one of like you are doing such a poor job at convincing me that this is where that character is now at. Yeah, it's like the same thing. I'll, he called me Squirt. I'm a king. I had battles and armies. Like, go get up, give me a break. Um, and then Lucy's uh, that's that's Edmund's arc, even though it's only his arc, like in three scenes. Everywhere else, he's like totally cool. <laughs> then a scene will come where he has his oh, I'm I'm grumpy and jealous. Like, like I th- I really seriously think it's only like three scenes in the entire film where this arc even comes up. And not to move on too quickly to Lucy, one another thing I want to say about Edmund is what's so frustrating is the fact that it's so isolated to like those those little scenes. Those that scene with the gold is one of the most jarring scenes ever to me. <laughs> I just because have a kingdom of my like, own. He's he's <laughs> offered the sword at first, and he's like, "No, you're king." Like he's he's the same like dope character from Caspian like my favorite character mm-hmm. he comes back and he's just as cool as ever and even the way he's like messing with Eustace at the beginning he has a line that's absolutely hilarious in the background at the very beginning whenever he's he, you hear him yelling at Eustace in the background as Lucy's examining the painting and he's like it's like uh, I, I know you stole your mom's treats and I found them under the bed and I lit everyone like he's he's funny he's still cool and he seems totally cool with Caspian. Like they're cool. Like they're like they're friendly little fight at the very beginning. There's a lot. Like the movie goes out of its way to portray this like mutual respect. And then one scene in this cave, all of a sudden, it's like he's drawing a sword. Like after an exchange of two lines. It's, it's because just... the green mist tempted him. Okay, that's what green mist does. Uh, it tempts people because if they're tempted, they uh, what do they do? What? Why is he tempting people? Okay, <laughs> we'll get there. Um, we will get there because I've got a whole spiel about and then the green mist. Lucy's there. arc in this film is she wants to be pretty like Susan. Fair enough, you know Anna Popple is a very attractive woman, but and and if I could find one single dramatic through line, I feel it's Lucy's arc. Like it's the one arc that keeps that comes up consistently throughout. Um, well, not exa- not exactly throughout because it ends shortly after the magician's house whatever <laughs> and like it's like it's this very in- cheesy shallow oh you're pretty just the way you are i mean like sure like you know insecurity in young girls is a real thing and i'm not opposed to a movie dealing with that but the way this movie deals with it is in such a trite surface level way and i don't think it helps that i think both skander Keynes and georgia henley are pretty stiff and awkward like they they were like two of my favorite uh you know child performances in both of the previous films and they they just they don't just don't have it here i don't know if it's the actors um you know georgia henley's continued acting uh skander Keynes quit acting after this maybe he was just tired of the whole thing i don't know i'm not going to try you know and find motivation but 
yeah, it's just I neither of them were very good in this movie, unfortunately. Yeah, there's some. I mean, a lot of it I think is the dialogue. Like, there's oh, the dialogue's terrible. <laughs> there's some really bad lines, and there's some, and it leads to some really awkward line reading. Like whenever they go into the cabin and and he pulls out all of her old stuff, and she's like, "My old healing cordial." And my dagger. It's just like it's from Susan, and she just smiles for like three full seconds at the camera. Like this, what's with the editing there? This, I was about to say, this movie's editing is all over the place. Like we will hold on to shots for a, an awkward amount of time. Like there's nothing in frame. What are we doing here? <laughs> but yeah, like just, and I don't, I don't know how much of it to blame is on them because I think there are moments where they're both really good. I think Georgie Henley has some really really good moments, but. There are other moments where I feel because of her her level of inexperience at the time, you know, this is I don't know if she was in anything in between all of these movies, at least anything, you know, on a on a big set. Um, so she's not a super experienced even still and and I feel like this script and probably what I can assume was just kind of like very plain kind of directing, maybe maybe some Lucas style directing mm-hmm. of of not giving a lot to the actors. She just let the, the the script get the better of her, and it it really comes off as awkward a lot of the time. But to Georgie Henley's credit, she is really trying. Like she's yeah, she's yeah, sorry, I mean, like bringing a lot of personality. Um, and, but I feel like they're try they're still trying to play the adorable card, like in this like trying to get back to oh she's cute she's Lucy remember her? you liked her but I wish she like fourteen fifteen right now it just it feels forced. Yeah, it's it's weird. Like I don't know how to me it didn't feel like they were playing that a lot of the time with the exception of of a few scenes. And it felt like those in those scenes like maybe with the with the snow and we were just supposed to watch her just like wide-eyed and this just pure childlike wonder, which may just be like that kind of like we got to shoot this for the trailer. Um but yeah, to me it just feel like they didn't like they didn't know at all what they wanted to do with her. And and I, I also, I have two issues with her arc. One is it is incredibly surface level, and I want to avoid sounding like the book purist that I usually don't get along with. Um, <laughs> but just knowing Lewis and the stories he told, and like some of his writing, and and even in Narnia at its most shallow, sometimes in in the books, Narnia's most shallow isn't even really that shallow. And like, there's some really really good stuff in the books, and here. It's all. It feels similar to what they did with Susan and Caspian, where they boiled it down and just told this very modern feeling arc. Like Susan was like, "Live in the moment," you know. And here it's like, "You're beautiful yeah. just the way you are." Like it's like all of all of the pink songs of the day. It wrapped into a character <laughs> arc is what it feels like. But you can't conflate her arc with the film's themes because if her arc was the theme of the film then Eustace flies entirely in that theme because he's intolerable that's what you know Aslan's lying to her don't run from who you are does that count for Eustace <laughs> or we're, we're uh, you know we were Gail says you know when I grow up I want to be just like you and she says no when you grow up you want to be just like but you. not like Eustace he's a turd yeah but the thing, the thing is like that is what that whatever the arc you know like you, know, whatever the wisdom of that, that is, I think, very fundamentally a different type of theme than anything Lewis would have gone for, you know, or any, you know, or anything within, even within the realm of Christianity that uh, you know Lewis was writing within. So it's just, like, it just feels so tacked on and surface level, and even you know, out of sorts with the with the more Christian elements of the story, which also feel tacked on. Everything in this movie feels tacked on, but let's go to a positive, uh, and that is 
uh, Will Poulter as Eustace. Like every time he's on screen, the film kind of comes alive. Like everything else feels very stiff and awkward. And he is there just giving this fully committed performance as this total jerk. I think his dialogue is probably the best in the film. There's so many great lines from him. It's weird. It feels like a different script because everyone else, like you said, everyone else is saying exactly how they're feeling, exactly what they're seeing. It's so straightforward and boring. But when he speaks, it's like some of his insults and his retorts are just like so great. And and Will Poulter, for my money, is giving the best performance of the film. He... Like, he's 100% committed. And I'm actually, like, I've become a big fan of Will Poulter. I think uh, he's, like, a deceptively good actor. And people just focus on his eyebrows, which are very distinct. But, like, the kid's a great actor. Um, but, like, just the way he's able... It, it seems like he is the one everyone else is acting off of. Like, he's bringing the center, the... The, the personality and the spark to the scenes and anytime anyone else is really good a lot of the time it feels be- like it's because they're kind of playing off of the energy he's bringing because without him the if the whole film like the actual cinematography uh, cinematography the film itself just feels flat and boring and then he's this jittery kid who's just yelling at everybody and upset with everything everyone else all the other characters and just the actors on set kind of have something else in frame to to latch onto and play off of. Uh, one of the lines that I absolutely love was, you know, after he'd passed out and come back to it, and they're like, found you, uh, found you see legs. He's like, never lost him. And he's just like, <laughs> ah, it's just great to listen to. Yeah, that, that scene you're talking about where everyone's playing off him is a really fun scene where they're all just kind of standing there with their arms crossed, just talking about him, even though he's standing right there, you know, quite the complainer, isn't he? Uh, <laughs> I love Caspian's line. You know, Are you sure he's related by blood? Yeah, and speaking of Caspian, I actually kind of like Ben Barnes in this, or actually like him quite a bit. And losing that Spanish accent, I think he comes here. He just comes across with this very easygoing likability. Um, the character is given nothing to do at all in the movie, but I, I like him. You know, he's very likable on screen. I think you know Ben Barnes was able to really just give a lot more personality. That he's not. He, I'm also quite happy that he lost the kind of the boy band hairstyle that he had for the first film he's gone for like the full ponytail this time it just he doesn't he feels just so much more freed up for some reason in this movie yeah i liked him quite a bit more and i I even enjoyed his performance in in prince caspian but here because he's not trying to just mimic inigo montoya uh and he's just using this you know easygoing british accent to me I think he was charismatic and likable in Prince Caspian, but that that char- charisma was having to fight itself through this weird external kind of accent thing to be shown. And here it just, it feels so much more natural. Like there's a sense of like relaxed nobility that he gives off effortlessly in the film. Like you said, despite the fact that he doesn't have a lot going for him and like the whole ending scene with the wave and him wanting to go off there just is kind of terrible in my opinion. Um, he himself, like I'm kind of in the moment with him just because he he's playing it really sincere and I think he does really well. Yeah, I guess his arc is supposed to be he's haunted by his father's loss and wondering if he's lived up to him. Again, like Edmund, it only comes up in like two or three scenes. You know, you have a scene where um his his father's, like in the, in the climax where his father's ghost comes and says, you know, I'd be, I'm so ashamed of you and nothing happens of it. And then at the end where he talks about where he's offered to go to Aslan's kingdom 
And he says, you know, I can't imagine my father would be too proud if I gave up what he died for. It's like, okay. He, and he does a great job. Like he's very emotional in the scene. He's doing a great job delivering that line. And maybe it would have been a good line if, I don't know, the film had set up the arc. Yeah, that temptation just does not feel real at all. Like this Aslan's offer or or the option of going through there. I'm like, no, nothing about this character tells us. He's like, yep. I mean, I've been leading for a while. I'm pretty well liked. You know, things are going fairly well outside of like this this weird forced kind of am I living up to him, which is weird because that whole idea of like, am I living up to to, you know, what my father would have wanted is like, well, in comparison to what? Like, what's going on? What's Narnia looking like? Like, why? Where is this doubt coming from? It's just we don't we don't get a good idea of how he's ruled Narnia or why he has any reservations about his like his kingship. There, there's no reason to doubt as it. best we can tell he's done a good job yeah like he shows up the he's got a crew that really likes him he's got a cheery disposition most of the time and then all of a sudden we're like what am i do i'm haunted by the guilt a guilt of what we don't know but it's just hanging over me and i want to go to the land of my father. it's just so weird and out there and and not at all organic to the story and certainly without these lines explicitly stating you know like with his father's ghost and everything if if those weren't there to tell it directly to the audience none of it is implied through um the attitudes or just general vibe of of the world we're at like none of that signals this stuff happening it's got to be maybe that's why they're so on the nose about saying how they feel is just because without that nothing in the film implies it yeah speaking of that final scene and that offer that aslan gives them why is aslan so useless in this movie like he is a complete non-character like i think he only he only shows up like three times but the big problem is that like i I think just speaking about that final scene aslan's like okay if you want to you can go Whereas, say, in the book, Aslan was there. He was telling them where they needed to go. Like, Caspian wanted to go to the to the world's end. He wanted to abandon his kingdom. Aslan came and said, no, stop being an idiot. You got to stay and rule your people. Like, that's that's the way with the book. And here he's just like, oh, I'm just opening the door. You guys do whatever you want. Have fun. And that's pretty much all he's here to do is say, oh, you're good as you are. You're perfect the way you are. You're nice. You're good, whatever. It's just... And I, I, I think... We didn't get to talk about Aslan in the in Prince Caspian, but I really love the way he was in Prince Caspian, where the entire story, despite him being absent for 95% of the screen time, the entire story is kind of shaped around Aslan, what Aslan wants and what he's doing right now. And this this story feels like just the opposite, where Aslan, like you cut him out of the movie, nothing is different. Yeah, it is weird. Like he feels entirely forced. And I, I was saying the same thing about Caspian, because to me, despite his limited screen time, his return and speech and just involvement at the end feels like it's the whole like thematic point of the movie. It's the movie coming to its head. It's it's the movie making its statement. Like this is what we've been about. This is this is why Aslan is still important to Narnia um, and why we still care and respect and revere him. It's Aslan putting everything in its place. You know, I'm putting Narnia in its place, returning, bringing back the old ways with him, like the old values. And and, and here, I just, it's just so weird. Like, you can kind of extrapolate from Prince Caspian, like, 
what Aslan's absence meant, you know, why he was doing what he was doing and why he's back, like, when he is. Here, it's just everything feels, you know, his return, his departure, everything, it just feels so arbitrary. Like, well, I, Eustace was having a tough time of it, so I came back and, and I healed him, and, you know, I'll, I'll see y'all off, but, you know, after that, I'm out of here. It just feels so random and forced and contrived. And, uh, and man, like, and I don't want to sound like the book purist just getting angry, but the way he cleanses Eustace, I yeah. don't like. It's one of the most powerful scenes in the entire series um, where Eustace has to like, at, you know, he's been also the reason he becomes a dragon is, is never clarified in the book. You know, he, he abandoned the crew and then he found the dragon's treasure. He's like, cool, I'm going to, yeah, yeah, I'm going to use this treasure to, aban- to to leave everyone else and you hopefully get revenge on them. And the, essentially the magic of, you know, him sleep, sleeping on a dragon's treasure, thinking dragonish thoughts, turned him into a dragon. And then, you know, th- th- then after that is where his character slowly started to change. And that's kind of what happens here. But, and then towards the end is, is where he, literally has to claw off his skin like he's like he's like just tearing off his skin trying to heal himself and then Aslan has to come and basically rips off all the flesh in his body and then he's he's turned back into a boy and in the movie he just like claws the sand once or twice and then he magic sparkle dust and he's a boy again and the thing is like if i i'm assuming it, it must have been due to one of two reasons one actually showing that would have like their their confusion yeah. in how you display that that's what's going on. Two, they don't want that PG thirteen rating, you know. But I feel like you could even get away with it without a PG thirteen. I mean, you're cl- clawing away the scales. It's just or cut, or, cut, or cut away as Aslan comes in. Have him claw, you know, scratch off one or two skins, and it'd be just the scaly snakeskin, no blood. And then Aslan comes in, bears his claws, and hear like Eustace roar as you cut away, like. Yeah, you can yeah. do it. Yeah, exactly. There, there's ways to work around it, and I think someone with more creativity would have found a way. And I, I just, I don't think Michael, I don't think Apted even understood that scene. Like he, 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 he knew the claws were important, but why? I feel like that's probably something that Douglas Gresham fought to keep in the movie. Because I know there were other things, like the, the line at the end of the at the end of the movie, which where Aslan says, "You know, in my world, I have another name. You must learn to know me by that name." At, you know, Michael. Uh, Gresham really had to, and uh, Mark Johnson from Walton, they really had to fight with Fox to get that line in the movie. And I applaud them for that, but that line is irrelevant. And like, he's like, oh, that's a nice line. Why is that there? What does it mean? Like, like little, there's like little relics of the meaning from the book that are there, but they have no meaning in the story that, that, that Apton exactly. You have to have knowledge of the book. And this is kind of relevant to what we were talking about on the last episode, where if it's relying on external knowledge to even work, that's a problem. And here it's, these scenes need you to know what they mean within the context of the book to ascribe the meaning in the film. Because in the book, those parallels are, I wouldn't say obvious because like that sounds, you know, I guess that carries a negative connotation, but you know, you understand the uh, the symbolism, you know what's being conveyed and it's really profound and powerful in the moment. But here, it, it doesn't even feel like it's symbolic or allegorical for anything. It's just like, I mean, it's Aslan. He's powerful. He showed up, he scratched the sand a couple times and it made him better. Like, it doesn't, there's, it's not saying something. It's not saying something about Aslan. It's not saying something about Eustace. And I think, I think Aptit, like, had the most 
surface level understanding of it with the whole I was like you know it hurt but in a good way like pulling the thorn from the- that's, that's just a line from the book it, well, exactly and so they put it there and the thing is <laughs> because of the way it's portrayed I don't believe that line <laughs> at all you know it hurt whenever the magical fairy dust came off of me and I lied gently in the sand as like I, I slowly hovered back down it's just it's played so just poorly to me and and the thing is I was kind of hoping that they would at least get that right because I, I didn't know how they portrayed that scene um, with this being the first time I've seen it and I remember just like angry yelling at the TV with my sister but I'm like no because she hasn't read the books and I'm like that's not how it is they lose everything they've just lost <laughs> the point it's so easy it's so easy and I'm a very I'm very forgiving about adaptations like Sure, if they botched that scene, like the effort, if it was a good movie, I could say, okay, they, they, they there was effort in trying to adapt that scene. It didn't work, but okay, it's a good movie. But I think we're being so hypercritical of the themes here because they took away the themes and put nothing back in its place. Uh, and that's like the most, the worst thing you can do as an adaptation. But since we're, since we're on the topic of uh, Dragon Eustace, I think like the the most successful element of this film is the relationship between Eustace and Reaper Sheep. Oh, easily. As you, see, you know, the film really comes alive when uh, Eustace is on screen. I would say, and I would say the same for Reaper Sheep. I am actually okay. I'm warming up to Eddie Izzard uh, as Reaper Sheep. I kind of hated him the first couple times, and I was kind of ambivalent. Uh, towards him for years this last few i was like okay i see what they're doing and not my not what i would have done but okay but i i love simon Pegg. i think my, my issue with okay uh, going back to the book describing the character of what ribbit cheap is ribbit cheap is this very like ridiculously noble and stern um like he uh character like the, the the nobility that surrounds him is like so obscenely off the charts but not ne- but never in a way that feels like pompous or self-righteous it's just like this is his nature he is the height of the sh- the, the chivalric code and that is just who he is and he never comes off as condescending or pompous um and he's but but with with, with i felt like Eddie Izzard was playing him as like rather just kind of pompous and conceited and full of himself and it was fun it worked it worked for that movie he's kind of a puss in boots character it worked for the film well enough um and what what Simon Pegg is playing is just this really earnest goodness and kindness so like neither but i you know i don't sense that real nobility and chivalry about Simon Pegg either so i don't think either actually comes really gets the book character. However, of the two, I think I much prefer Simon Pegg just because of how earnest and kind-hearted he comes across as. Yeah, I, I think for me, um, I think uh, Izzard really, really got that sense of nobility. And and to me, the, the pompousness he gave off, it never, I feel like it never contradicted. It may not have been what was in the book, but I also don't feel it always like kind of contradicted what I knew was from the book. Um, and then just on its own terms, without even comparing it to the book, it and there was just something about it that felt like it worked for the character. It felt natural. Like, if this kind of character, who's like the fiercest war, uh, warrior while also being like the most noble kind of knightly guy ever, is, is in the body of this mouse that's never being taken seriously, like, Eddie Izzard's portrayal of him is... It's what feels natural to me. Okay, that, that, that's what I, I, I would say. That, that I think 
there is a tongue-in-cheek winking aspect to him in the Prince Caspian where we're kind of supposed to be smirking at him, whereas in the book, I think we're kind of taking him pretty, like, totally seriously and straight, which would be very difficult to play in film. So, yeah, I, I definitely sympathize with the adaptive choice, but I was just I was just saying I, I don't think either one is really gets that tone that we have in the book, which is it's fine. No, I don't think either is the total package. I think despite me really liking Peg as well, uh, this is one of the few times because I've I brought Peg up before in like previous episodes as like just the guy who can do no wrong, who's consistently perfect in whatever he's doing. I think here for some re- maybe it's because I know what Peg sounds like. It just it sounds like a character being put on as opposed. I don't know if I can say that without any bias, just because of how much I love him. Although I mean I, I can watch this portrayal of Scotty just fine. But here, I don't, it just, it feels like, like there, there's conscious decisions he's constantly having to make in the moment for the character. It, it doesn't feel like he's just become him and it, I don't know, I guess it, it just sounds like a voice or an impression or, or, or a character or something. It just, it doesn't feel natural. But I mean, it's, it's not even a huge criticism and his relationship with Eustace is, is for me the heart of the film and what works by far the best. And so, I mean, it's it's not a, a major complaint at all. I just kind of wish, I, I also just like continuity and I would have liked uh, Izzer to be able to continue. Yeah, what I liked about his relationship with Eustace was like, when, even when Eustace was being a total ass and everyone else just kind of loathed him, you could see that, you know, Reaper Chief was still, was mocking him, was really giving him a hard time. But you, there was a sense that he was the only one actually willing to put any kind of investment into trying to help Eustace become a better person. Like the scene where he steals the orange, he's like, I just, just hand it over and we'll let it go. And then you know, after, after you know, the whole thing with a tail and they, they start the duel, the whole, throughout the whole duel, he's like teaching about a sword fight, you know, stop flapping around like a drunken pelican. It's a dance boy, a dance poise. And he's just like, the whole time you like teaching about a sword fight. And at the end, you know, we'll make a swordsman of you yet. Like he's actually there like trying to encourage this useless person to become something better and then the scene after uh after eustace becomes a dragon where he just kind of goes up to him and starts telling him stories about this other dragon who is much more fierce than you uh it's just very there's just such a kindness about the character it's when the movie feels it's most sincere like it's actually giving a crap about these characters and and being really heartfelt yeah so then by the end where you have eustace like crying as he's saying goodbye to probably the first friend he ever made in his life it hurts, man. Like Will Poulter is fantastic. They're like, this is the one like really good relationship the film has built up, and both performers I think are really giving it giving it their all. And so, yeah, just, I just I really like both of them, and I think the way the way the film is able to put them together is quite good. Yeah, that's that scene at their departure. I've told you this, just talking like messaging you after the movie. It makes me angry because it elicits an emotional reaction. <laughs> like as he says goodbye, like, you know, he's Lucy's let him hug him and he's he's shown adorable. that kind of like tenderness. And it's it's that right there is just adorable and sweet. And then, you know, Eustace walks into frame and it, you we see the tears. Like you said that what you just said is exactly what made that scene like so emotional for me. He's like he's finally like he's found this guy who's put up with him and and made him into a better person. He's like the first time he's ever been treated with real sincere kindness and he's leaving and it's really really sad and and a sweet bitter or a bittersweet goodbye. And I 
just I, I really really enjoyed that moment and then they they kind of ride that that momentum uh, of emotion a little bit into the end with with his final vo about you know them leaving and how much he misses them and like by the time it was all said and done i had a stupid tear in my eye i'm like no you have, i have been totally <laughs> apathetic to this film this entire time you don't get to cheat and get the, an emotional tear from me at the very end that's not fair and I, I also love the way he, he he like rides on Eustace's head as a dragon into battle. Like that's that is the most creepy cheap thing ever. Or after Eustace panics, and he's like sitting on his nose, and Eustace is going cross-eyed trying to look at him, telling him, "You know, you know, no retreat, no surrender." It's 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 it, it all works quite well. So, what are your thoughts on on the dragon itself? It's an odd design. I, it's a it's a decent effect. I think it has a very expressive face, which, which I like. You could always tell whatever he was thinking, which I, I thought was quite good. I'm not sure about the weird crest and there's like the weird like tendrils hanging off his chin. Always kind of grossed me out. Um, it's fine. So I, I'm super mixed on it. Where I think the effects are decent enough. I really appreciate the expressiveness. Uh, I think they are able to convey a lot for the character. You know, you don't even really feel like you're missing Eustace's presence because of it, just because it's so expressive. We're consistently emotionally tracking with him. Um, and I actually like the tendrils in the chin and like the way they have him react with the environment. So like when he's resting his head on the beach and stuff, I think that's all cool. I don't, I, like a I think my, <laughs> it's, yeah. But I don't know. To me, like, there's something about that really works. I j- I don't like the weird like slide in the nose into the snout. Uh, it feels really, really cartoonish to me. Like it feels like it's in like a children's picture book or Monsters Inc. The design or something. Of the effects. The 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 actual design, like mm. the the huge sloped. I mean, it looks you know like like a slide. Like it's a very. You start at the top of the head and you just slides straight into the nose and it just it cartoonish is just how i describe it it doesn't look cool and i don't think you know every dragon you know in a lot of ways i'm still a kid who just wants to see cool monsters on screen i don't think every dragon has to be the coolest thing we've ever seen it's just maybe it was intentional to make eustace look even pathetic (laughs) even as this mighty dragon he's still kind of pathetic maybe but like i mean i feel like you can find a way to do that and still like give Give a design that just doesn't feel like it's it's in like I don't know some sort of Pixar animated film or something like he it looked it looked like they borrowed like just the the shapes and designs from the good dinosaur just for the head it, I don't know <laughs> it, it didn't work at all for me. And speaking of the effects, like they're they're wildly inconsistent. Like all like the water effects. Like I, I, I'm I'm convinced that this film was shot on water, which is which is obviously a huge feat uh and uh, you know for the for the visual effects artist and also i thought mm-hmm. uh, tavros looked pretty good um you could tell his head was digital but I, I still thought you know he was still pretty convincing you know for a digital face which is not easy to do in full daylight um but then there was the effects like the green mist is horrible like this really really bad if i if i saw this on like a like a you know a um on a network tv show it's like Oh, that 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 was the effects you chose. Okay, but here in a hundred fifty million dollar movie, it's just like, like they just put in some random smoke plugin from from a you know an effects program and didn't do any work on it. It is so bad. The way it interacts with the water is, so, 
it's so ridiculous. I don't know how like who okay this. It's it's so cheesy and cartoonish looking. If you want to talk about like laughable effects, the uh, the the visible breath in the cold is awful. Which, like whenever whenever she's talking to like the whatever they're called, like the guys with the with the foot. Like that, yeah. So that scene, like I understand. So you have you have to have everybody having that like visible breath effect because we have to have it for them so we can see them. So Lucy had to have it as well. If you look at that, like it is so obviously not originating from her mouth. It's like it made me laugh in the moment. Hmm. Um, and there there are just weird moments like that where the effects are just so silly. I actually was not at all a fan of of Tavlos's effect either. Hmm. Because for me, it's it's weird because the they changed to do digital for the face, and yet it looked like the the issues of full prosthetic and costumes felt more apparent here than ever. Like whenever he's just standing still, he just he looks like a guy whose head is like two feet below the head of the Minotaur. He's got this giant shoulder pad on him, like. The, the proportions are completely inconsistent with the first two. Like it's there, they feel like completely new designs. It's it's not the same same proportions and height and, and, and design of the first two. And then whenever, and, and so just from a distance, before you can tell it's CGI, it just looks like an, a guy awkwardly standing with this bulky suit and his head hidden behind stuff. And then when you zoom in, like we're we're paying the price of this huge prosthetic suit, but then we're we're still getting this digital face. That for me, I don't. Know, maybe it's because I'm able to make the one to one comparison with this and the previous two films, and I would have maybe been more, um, more forgiving if this was just how it always was. But because of how cool, like the general from the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe was, and and whoever he was, who's like sacrificed himself in Caspian, here it just it looks so off and like whenever he actually speaks the way the mouth moves is just weird to me and so yeah there's certain effects i think really really work and and help the film feel immersive and there are other effects from like hey this is just off so let's just just run through a couple of the islands because the film is is like the book it does feel very uh episodic um first you got the lone islands uh I'm not even going to get to how badly this butchers the this, the amazing scene from the book. Whatever. I, I don't understand that. What what is the situation here? Like, the slavers seem to be like they they seem to have an established base, and they're just kind of casually getting up the gathering up the civilians to sell, but only some. But there's like seven of them. Yeah, yeah. It's like 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 when, when they capture. Rince's wife. Why don't they capture him and his dog? Like, what, what is the what 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 is the situ- the political situation here? I, I have no understanding of it. Why do they have a book in this random church? It looks like a church. It's probably not a church because Narnia doesn't have a religion. But who knows? What's like everything about this this island's like I don't understand how any of this is working. However, I do think it's a pretty decent action scene. Like it's a, it's kind of a for all Michael Apted's flaw, uh, flaws. I think he's a, like a surprisingly competent action director. I think these sequences have a there's a decent energy to them. They're kind of fun. Like this, it feels like kind of a, a cool Prince of Persia, Aladdin type sequence. Uh, not the greatest action sequence, but you know, for how stilted and useless most of the film was, I found whenever action happened, it was you know surprisingly coherent and engaging. Yeah, I mean, to me, it was serviceable enough. It it felt like it had a sense of of flow and direction. It wasn't just a bunch of like 
all right, Caspian, you you will have like a quick thirty second sequence of you fighting these two, and then you doing this. Like, it felt like there was a level of staging. Uh, but I had the exact same problem as you did, just with with this island in general. It it feels so fake. Like I am not convinced at all that there is an actual people here living here. Like the fight itself, like afterwards out in the streets, is is so like comes and goes. And, and like I said, like it feels like there's like seven guys, and so you you show up with like not even a small army. It's just like a, a couple of uh, just a handful of people from a boat, and it's like the day is won. You know, we were able to drive out this group of people that was somehow keeping these couple hundred of people at bay. Like how how does that even work? And then like just knocking out the main guy in the water. Like wait, what are what is happening here? Why is None of this feels real at all. This is so just fake feeling. And I also, like, despite the fact that the actual staging and choreography of some of that stuff was decent, I this is where some of the problems with the color and, and grading and everything feel most apparent. It just feels like it. We're sometimes we're just seeing raw footage. Oh, the scene in the jail cell with, with Lord Byrne is horrible. Like, the, from a lighting and color perspective, like, there's... Like, they didn't even light the scene properly, and they did nothing with the footage. It looks like something I shot on my phone. Yeah, and then when we're actually, like, when we're outside and the sun's beaming down, like, to me, all of the problems that you'd, you'd experience, like, trying to shoot in that level of harsh sunlight, we have ways of correcting that. You know, like, there's, there's people who are hired for these jobs, but all of the problems that harsh sunlight creates, to me, are kind of there. There's just this, like... It's, it's, I mean, you can tell it's in everybody's eyes. It's kind of throwing off performance. It's just, it's, it's shining on skin in really awkward ways. It's, it's making the set itself feel like, like a set and the costumes feel like costumes. It's, I don't know. There's something about it, that, that whole outside scene. And then all, when you have that level of harsh sunlight with, uh, the kind of motion smoothing they've got, it, it really does just feel like, like unedited raw footage that they brought out in, in a really harsh environment, like lighting environment. Yeah. Uh, so next Island would be the Island of the duffel puds. Um, I think CGI of them is whatever. It's not great, but it works. The, I do like, I think, sorry, the design itself, I think is, is good, you know? Yeah. And I, I, I like that they're appropriately ridiculous. Like the characters are they're, they're, they're just like incredibly stupid characters in the book, and I think they they got that across quite well. You know, if you could see us, you'd be very intimidated. You know, big ones with the head of a tiger and the body of a a, a different tiger. <laughs> That's a good. Uh, the the oppressor is very oppressive. <laughs> we can't read, can't write neither. As a matter of fact, <laughs> it's the, the way that you know, the chorus of voices is. It's quite fun. Uh, the spell book, whatever. It's it happens. The whole it's the whole Lucy wants to be beautiful thing i'm like why does why does the green mist care if lucy feels uh you know insecure about her body image why what 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 is the what what is the green okay let's talk about the green mist what does the green mist want all right if we're gonna go here i feel like i'm most of what i have to say about this movie like it's kidnapping people in boats but not doing anything to them because as when the when it's destroyed it all they're all just released <laughs> into the middle of the water safe and sound it it, it has an invested interest in what we do, we do know it has a vested interest in kidnapping people and tempting them to either have insecure body images or want to be king or 
feel worried about how their father feels about them. Okay. <laughs> and then, 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 yeah, they create they they created the green mist to give the story an antagonist, but and then they created this video game plot where you have to gather together seven swords that were given by Aslan and lay them together at the stone table. And once you lay the seven swords on the stone table, then the green mist just vanishes. And I, I don't care. There's, there's there's they added this plot to give the film you know a sense of momentum, a sense of. You know, you know, it says that we're going from here to here, like a direction, which I sympathize with and I fully understand. But what they added is so lifeless and meaningless. There's no thematic weight to any of it. There's no, like, and it just doesn't even work. This is a basic level of like, what is this? Why should I be scared of it? What does it want? I don't okay, know any so of this. This is where, you know, as I said in the last episode, it's been a while since I've read the book. I couldn't remember what was in the book and what wasn't. So what is the purpose of the journey in the book? In the book, um, Caspian sets out to uh, find the seven lords that Lord Mira has banished. Um, you know, kind of righting the wrongs as, as the new king. He's going to find the you know, seven lords who were friends of his father. Um, and also, Reepicheep is coming along because he wants to go to the ends of the earth. And so there's kind of a you know the nobility of we have to right the wrongs of the past, and then just this this you know hunger for adventure, the you know, the romance of we're traveling into unknown regions and maybe to the end of the world to the end of the world in Aslan's country. That's it, you know. So they kind of just go from island to island, having wacky adventures. Okay, so the the sword thing, man, the green mist is. I was I wanted to say you know I don't remember any of this in the book, but I didn't know if it was that bad. But like the the entirety of the green mist is made up. That feels so apparent, like in its explanation. And then there's a line from the magician. There, 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 there was a okay, there was a leaked script that connected everything back to the Lady of the Green Kirtle, which who's the villain in the the next chronological book, The Silver Chair. But that was that obviously never made it to the final product, which it would have been really stupid. But I would would at least have given it a personal touch to the villain rather than this give it even a persona this. there's it's nothing yeah it's absolutely nothing yeah, it's nothing and it's what's so frustrating is so that doesn't make the cut but we still have the line from the magician guy who's saying like it's what's behind the green mist what's behind the green mist <laughs> what is it i don't know it's just green mist the, the book the, the film tells us nothing in addition to this for all we know it is just the green mist unless it's these water serpents and that's what we're supposed to think and like the treatment of the water serpents is so weird where edmund's like water serpents really it's like we've got these mermaids made from water and your cousin is a dragon like don't scoff at water serpents it's like, why is he all of a sudden like yeah, that's his greatest fear now like it's it comes up in like two different scenes like or be eaten by sea serpents like where is this coming from and it's like it's 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 the, it's the stay puffed marshmallow man thing from uh ghostbusters yeah it's have you seen ghostbusters i i have not but i i understand the uh where it's, it's, it says the same thing you know don't 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 think about whatever you most fear and why is it only pay attention to edmund fears like you had the potential to make a really crazy sequence. Imagine if every one of those guys' fears was coming to life and attacking them. Like, what kind of bonkers sequence could you have yeah. made? Instead, oh, it's just his fear. And now, again, it's a creepy looking sea serpent. And and I think you know it's another pretty solid action sequence. Uh, you know, the effects in the sea serpent are you know decent enough. But again, like you created this concept, you know, you that has so much potential for really for you know for a really creepy crazy scene and you just give us the bare minimum 
I mean, like, the effects themselves are fine enough, but I, I, I find it difficult to even be entertained. And like I said, I'm a six-year-old kid a lot of the time who just wants to see giant monsters, and the designs are cool enough, but the way it's shot, everything just feels so floaty. Like, I don't feel the weight of a lot of the stuff happening. It doesn't feel physical and tangible and real. It's, it's, it's the same problem I had with some of the more outlandish stuff from The Hobbit, where it's like this... This feels just like a digital playground. Um, and so I understand. The thing I remember most about the book was was that cave they, they sail into. How you adapt that in film, like the that's going to be difficult. It's super... You mean Dark cre- Island? Do what? You mean Dark Island? Yes. So that, that island is really creepy in the book, and I don't know how, how you adapt it. Like... It gives me all of these creepy, unsettling vibes when I read it, especially as a kid. Like with the just hearing like the sound of giant scissors snipping to get like for me, mm. it was really, really creepy in the moment, and it was it was very psychological. And I don't know if you can do that. I think you can. I think you could find a way to still find a way to make it just like the psychological toying with with all of them. But here, like the only thing we get of that is. For some reason, Tilda Swinton's showing up again. It's like <laughs> she's not tempted. He's the guy who showed up and like and cut her off and like stabbed her in Prince Caspian. He's done with her. He has. There's absolutely zero temptation in there. And so for like Peter to randomly be tempted in Caspian, and for Edmund to somehow even for a split second look at her with any sort of like hmm, like no, you you nip that in the. If it was unclear by the end of Wardrobe, you made it explicitly clear that that is done dead in the water with with Edmund and Caspian. And here, like that's the that's where your creative mind goes and how to visualize this temptation is like. We got the green witch now, and it's uh, <laughs> that whole scene is really, really. It's just a letdown, even without knowledge of the book. It's just such a so it, it lacks any sense of imagination in me. And then, yeah, just the motivations of the green mist again. Like there, there's only I don't want to just you know insult the film like nonstop, but and or to harp on the green mist for too long, but like. There, there is no motivation. You cannot have a, a, a film where the, the villain isn't a character, isn't a persona, has no personality, has no goals, has no motivation. It shows up, takes people, doesn't kill them, gets them all together on boats in the off chance it's killed and sends them out. Like, what is this? This isn't a plot. This isn't an actual functioning plot. It's, ugh. <laughs> you done? <laughs> yeah, I think I'm done. Um, yeah, so th- then there's uh, Goldwater and Dragon Island. Um, I love this location. I don't know where it is, but this this like reddish orange rock that like just goes off as far as you can see. It's, it's a really cool looking location. Um, the the go- we talked about the Goldwater sequence. It's it's kind of ridiculous. <laughs> this place has tempted you. Oh my god! It's like a, every line is like just in case the kids are too stupid in the back. Just we're gonna we're gonna spell it out for you really clear. And also the what bugs me about that scene is in the in the book it was Aslan kind of appeared and then they stopped fighting here it's Lucy because Aslan doesn't matter of course there's really absolutely nothing to say about as the the island with Aslan's table um but it's got it gave us another great addition to the sky beam oh yes this movie does have a blue sky beam because Narnia needed a blue sky beam <laughs> uh last thing I want to talk about is the end of the world 
I, I, I love the Sea of Lilies. You know, it's a very evocative image from the book. I think he did a really great job bringing that to the screen. I mean, how, how, how could you get it wrong? Just lilies on the water. That said, it's a very, it's very uh, lovely. I think it, it does, it does capture kind of that very otherworldly kind of ethereal tone that the book has towards the end. I think, I think giving Eustace that kind of voiceover explaining his redemption, actually, it 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 serves to create this weird kind of disconnect you're feeling within yourself with that scene. I think, I think that that seems pretty effective. Um, it's the same, but to a lesser extent, kind of vibe of of Frodo's VO at the end of Return of the King of like, this is this is surreal. This is some you know this is kind of the end of the journey thing. Mm-hmm. And then the, the the never ending wave, which is a very difficult. Um, thing to even imagine. I think they 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 got it. They you know they visualize what a never ending wave would look like. It looks really good. The effects are amazing. Even seeing someone ride up the wave with Reepicheep looks totally yeah. cool. It holds up. And I think by having like the mountainous country behind just like just visible enough but obscured, it it continues to sell that like just wholly otherworldly kind of vibe. And, and so I, I like the tone of the ending. I think. The, the performances are all good. The, there's a lot of nice character moments, but I think like thematically it's, it's just as empty as the rest of the film. Like Aslan just kind of offering them all a place in his world. Like what? Like you're going to take Edmund and Lucy away from their family. Like he's, he would like the character of Aslan would have been there. Say, no, you have a duty to your family. Caspian, you have a duty to your kingdom. Like Aslan isn't just there to, facilitate whatever selfish desire they have at any moment. And that's all Aslan is in this movie. Or lines like, you know, like my world was made for noble hearts such as yours. And Caspian says, no one could be more deserving because of course, yeah, you, you earn your way to Aslan's kingdom. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it misses the, uh, again, this is, this is definitely me as a Christian, you know, with knowledge of, of, of theology, uh, Lewis's theology, the theology he put in the books. But, even that, I, I, even if you didn't want to make it as explicitly Christian, at least you know, have, at least respect the spirit of the books. You know, whereas this, see, he does. I don't even think he even understands remotely what the spirit of the books was. Yeah, I mean, the whole thing is it feels very humanistic when you're like, no one could be more deserving type. That like it's, I don't know. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't <laughs> buy it. Especially consider like. Again, not even just flying in the face of of Lewis's theology and and you know like and, and things that I believe, it also does feel like it's contradicting a bit of, of of the film itself. Like the whole purpose of Narnia for these other people is that it would like they come here and it's what makes them better. And like the movie does that, but it also just while while the whole thing feels like it's it's like a process of us being made better by something external to us. The movie is then making it to be like, we are great, and we just needed to be shown how great. We, I don't know. It just it it feels very, very boring and uninspired and like, poppy of like you know just oh you're you're great you're fine you know. Oh, one thing I forgot to mention earlier. I think the uh, the the transition into Narnia is really cool. Uh, in the book, like the picture becomes big and they kind of just fall into the picture which would be very difficult to visualize. Done very weirdly in the BBC movie. Oh, you mean badly. Uh, <laughs> but here, yes. I like. I think it's a very imaginative and cinematic transition where the water basically fills up the room and then they swim out the top. It's, it's I think, well, you know, one of the few sequences that feels like they had 
this real cinematic adaptation going on and then at the end where the water kind of like drains back into the picture you know both really cool effects and that feel they feel distinctly magical it's a cool effect and like i love that as it drains like it leaves everything dry like their clothes are dry and everything like it's really just it's completely reversed its effect on the room i thought that was really cool yeah i i I do want to give credit to where it's due i feel like i don't know if it was one of the writers or maybe like a script assistant. So there, there was someone in this production who was a big fan of the book because like, there's a lot of lines and nods or moments that are that are you know given towards the book. Um, you know things like uh, Eustace's diary, which is kind of used as a narrating device in the in the movie, which I think is really cool. That was from the book Reaper Cheap Song. Um, kind of the line where you know where Edmund says, "You know, I have to share with Eustace Clarence. If anyone deserves your name, that's a nod to the actual first line of the book." Uh, like the albatross that shows up, it means absolutely nothing because they cut away, <laughs> immediately cut away from it at Dark Island. Like that's from the book. Uh, the fact that Aslan is actually clawing the ground and you know making the marks on his chest, like there's, you can tell at least someone with a knowledge and like love of the book was was there, put, constantly putting little touches here and there um, that I think make the that make the journey. You know, we've been incredibly critical towards this film, and I think it deserves a lot of criticism, but. It's not like it, it doesn't, I don't, I don't feel like it had any animosity towards the book. I felt more is, is like ignorance on the part of Michael Apted, yet love within the crew for the story. So you get a lot of very nice and much appreciated nods, I think, even if it missed the point. Yeah. And, you know, for, for people who have read the books and enjoy them, sometimes that, that can actually go a, a, a good ways because we are able to bring that external knowledge to it. So we can see these things that are entirely consequential within the context and confines of this film, but we give it meaning. And so it, it means more to us. But, but again, it's kind of like a two way thing of, because I know it, I know how shallow and superficial it is here. Yeah. Um, so before we close out, I think, you know, we have been so negative. I I do want to mention uh, just the things we liked about the movie. I think the production design, it's not always good, but when it's good, it's really like the, the Dawn Treader's great. I think the costumes, are, the costumes and armor, they all look pretty cool. The entrance, the mansion scene is really cool. Like the way the door opens up in the middle of nowhere and mm-hmm. she's like looking at it both sides. I think that effect is really, really neat. And just the entire design of that island is cool. Yeah. Um, I like, I think like the Lone Islands, like the, the, the weird abandoned city look, it makes no sense like logistically, but I think it's a really cool looking set. I think it, I like the tone. Like the reason I don't dislike this movie more is because I think it it just has there's a likability to it. I think you know, there's an earnestness and just kind of open hearted nature to it all that kind of just makes it impossible to dislike. Other than when it's like really bad, like Green Mist stuff, it's just like it's kind of charming. And you know, the the actors are even if they're not great, they're trying. There's just a pleasantness about it that I find it's it's. It's fine to watch. It doesn't really make me mad unless I sit down and think about it. <laughs> yeah, there, I mean, there's a level of sweetness to it that I, I think helps redeem some of the the poorer aspects of it. And uh, I think there, it does it does t- uh, take some of the the weird wackiness of you know going to each island. Each island is like its own crazy little thing. Like there is a sense of kind of magic and adventure to it all that I think. Uh, 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 yeah, adventure is an adventurousness that um that they were able to capture occasionally. <laughs> so yeah, I think, I think we pretty much uh, give it a general picture of this review you know, as a discussion, as awkward and disjointed as the movie itself. Uh, let's just talk about the score really quick. Uh, first, I want to mention the, uh, the uh, Carrie Underwood's score over the end credits, or 
Actually, I don't even want to talk about her score. The end credits, <laughs> the uh, the 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 moving Pauline Baines illustrations, beautiful. Like I feel like they put they put that at the end. Of the, you know, we've probably pissed off every book fan. Let's throw that in there real quick to make sure that we uh, that the, the book fans are happy at the ending. Yeah, really cool thing. Uh, the the song itself, it sounds it sounds nice enough. The lyrics are horrible. Like this one lyric, exactly who we are is just enough. Like blah, blah, blah. Gag me. Not for you, since that's the. Po- not uh, only is that not in the book, you're contradicting the book. You're giving the exact opposite message of the book. Eustace sucks. He's got to learn to grow and not be his bratty <laughs> little self. Yeah, it's it's just vague, you know, cat poster humanism. There was there's a line in it where I think she says, "We, we can be the kings and queens of anything we want if we believe." Mm-hmm. <laughs> like. But a weird thing about this song is it's not available anywhere. It's not on the soundtrack. It's like I couldn't find it on like Apple Music. I searched around online. I couldn't find anywhere. Like there's like one weird old CD that has it. I don't know why that is, but it, yeah, it's nowhere to be found. Well, it's no no real loss. I, as a song, it just sounds like any generic song you could flip to on any any radio station. Yeah, and as a uh, let's go on top of the score itself. Um. I got some I got some thoughts. <laughs> uh at first I want to rant a little bit about the like the presentation is I think the line that was in the wardrobe and Prince Caspi, like regardless of how the uh this the music actually is, I I think it's like the perfect soundtrack where it's like twelve or thirteen songs a piece, each one like two to five minutes long, and like each musical piece t- feels like it's telling a full story, you get a full experience, and then and then you move on to the next song, and it's nice and short. It's 12, 13 tracks. This one is 30 tracks. Like, a lot of them are under a minute long. So, like, whenever a, a track feels like, oh, it's getting going, I'm getting into it, it ends. It, the, the whole score is really disjointed, and I... I there's a... This is kind of a, more of a soundtrack nerd thing, but like I, I much prefer shorter soundtracks with them that feel like they're giving me a story. And it really, it always bothers me when I get a score that's like 30 tracks long. It's like, I don't even want to bother listening to it at that point. But that's kind of irrelevant. Uh, about the score itself. Um, so you had David Arnold coming in and essentially pulling uh, uh Danny Elfman and saying, you know what? I'm going to write my own music. Sure, you know these two fil- the two pre- two previous films have had this really strong musical identity that spoke into the themes of the story. No, I'm just going to write my own music and ignore all that. Well, he didn't ignore. It. To be fair, he didn't ignore all that. He did bring the themes back occasionally, but he brought in a new main theme that is so it's an it's nice music, but it's so nondescript and it doesn't there's nothing fantastical about it there's nothing adventurous about it it it's doesn't just, it doesn't elicit an actual emotion or feeling yeah it just it sounds nice and it ends it's like this it's a, it's a you know it's high adventure it's it's, it's this fantasy at least tell us that through the music I, what really bothers me is the scene the, the, the track the painting which is where they fall through the painting into Narnia and they, they see the John Treader why doesn't either the heroic theme or the Narnian theme show up? They're like, you have the nerve to put your own theme over the stupendous moment of coming back to Narnia with... And that, that that scene should have been made by Harry Gregson Williams' music, bringing us back into the emotion of the moment. Instead, who cares? Because it's some nondescript theme that no one no uh, that means nothing. I remember the first sign of trouble was whenever the title card showed on the film... And I didn't hear that Pevensey theme. Yeah, the Pevensey theme never even shows up. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, so that's the same thing. 
what like because that's the one that typically plays like over the titles and it's like that that it that kind of initial magical like entering right i'm not sure like it's is that the is that the track that plays like in caspian whenever they they first show up on the i believe the i believe that's the pevensey's theme yeah okay yeah so that that played over the the title in Line the Witch in the Wardrobe and in Prince Caspian. And I remember we see the title here and it's just like the super generic music. I'm like, no, I can already tell something is off. <laughs> uh, this is the Kings and Queens of Narnia, which is the best track of the score, if only because it's all Harry Gregson Williams music you know, with the uh, with the heroic theme, which is beautiful. Uh, Reaper Cheap, I think he has a nice, quiet little theme. It's, it's like full of hope and optimism. It doesn't really match the character, but it sounds pretty. <laughs> then there's the, the Green Mist. It's uh, this like pretty generic suspense tune however there's two things i like about it's like these really harsh chanting vocals that i quite like and then this really unnerving whistle that keeps going off in the background that that, that I, uh, I thought was pretty cool uh the magician's island there's a really epic theme that starts playing for about 10 seconds and it disappears to be seen no more i don't care about the rest of the track but this really epic piece of music that i wish they played with some more under the stars uh, this is like a very sweet, soothing piece of music that plays as Reaper Cheap comforts Dragon Eustace. Uh, and then this is a play- part where I think the, the, the new Narnian theme actually fits really well. Uh, it, it's not the theme for a bombastic adventure, but it, it fits quite well in this, you know, this quiet character moment. And there's Ship to Shore. It's a, you know, a nice kind of soothing piece. There's like a little bit of Star Wars in there. There's a little bit of Unbreakable. Uh, and it kind of all has a really satisfying crescendo. Um, yeah, so as a score, it, the music is is nice enough, but you're coming into, a, I think, one of the few fantasy series with a really strong musical identity and just amazing themes. And he used them once or twice, but he just never at the right emotional moment. And like he never he never even used the Pevensey's theme, which could have been put to great use at multiple times. Uh, I don't even remember if the Narnian theme showed up. Like he used the heroic theme a couple times, but just it just feels like that. That kind of fantastical, soothing, surreal kind of vocals of the first one. That the the female vocals that just feel yeah. floaty to like this transitional magic place is just entirely absent here. And yeah, it, it's good music, but it it doesn't it doesn't feel like. Like trans, uh, like fantasy. It's it's not like this. When you listen to the Line of the Rose Road Trip score, you are in Narnia. This is pure blissful fantasy. The music here, like this, should be this should have that tone as well. You know, they're trying to go back for that magical feel of Line of the Rose Wardrobe, but the music itself, despite being good, decent music, just doesn't have that soul. And it, like, like he he could have at least been lazy and stolen the soul of the previous scores, but no, he tried to go on his own, and it feels just. Meh. And so finally, our star rating and our ranking. Uh, James, what would you give this film out of five stars, and how would you rank the uh, series? Um, so for ranking, I I like them lesser with each new one, though I still genuinely uh, like the first two. I think if maybe a little bit of nostalgia, but there I can't help but not love Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I mean, even with its three and a half stars, I just I really, really enjoy that movie. Prince Caspian comes surprisingly close to that level of enjoyment and investment, so it's my number two. This is without a doubt my least favorite, and out of five, I give it two out of five. I was close to giving it two and a half just because my my overall feelings are just total ambivalence and apathy. I think 
then like because of that though like just looking at it at a technical level despite the fact that it's perfectly competent you know for the most part i i feel comfortable saying i dislike it more than like it because of the complete absence of a plot like for you to have a villain that has no persona no like i mean it's one thing to have sauron as an eye like you still you can there's motivations there there's a character there there's like there's no character as a villain the the sword plot just feels so weird it's it's not an actual story i don't feel like i walked away from the end of the movie thinking i was told a story it was just a random series of events with no emotions no goals no growth and so on a story level it doesn't just not do anything for me like it actually it does the opposite of do something for me. it gets it just gets a bad reaction from me where i'm like man you this is just so slapped together. So, so I ended up deciding to to remove that half a star and just end um and on a two out of five. Yeah, so I I had it as a two two point five. However, just talking about it, I, I do feel I might have also come down to a two stars. I don't know. I, I think I'll just stick with a two and a half. You know, I'm I don't I don't actually dislike this movie that much. More, I just like some of the themes, but just as a movie. I'm fine with it existing. I'll probably see it a couple more times in my life. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 fine. Um, as an adaptation, it would be like a one point five. Um, as far as the ranking, I think I for yeah, I give both Caspian and Line of the Wisdom Worship two and a half, I mean three and a half stars. They're pretty close for me, but I would I think I'll give Line of the Wisdom Worship a slight edge. So it'd be Line of the Wisdom Worship, Prince Caspian, and Voyage of the Untreader on the bottom. So on its initial release, it earned 104 million domestically and 311 million in the foreign markets for a worldwide total of 415 million on its 155 million dollar production budget. Um, and add, add to that uh, the hundred the hundred million they spent on marketing, and they maybe they maybe just broke even, if that. Like there's there's, there's a good chance they lost money on this movie. Um, and that's actually a slight drop from a. You know, 450. This one made 415 million. Prince Caspian made 419 million. So this is the lowest grossing film in the series, despite you know drastically lowering the budget and trying desperately to get back that, that the core line they wish the wish of audience. It just didn't work. Um, as far as the critical reception, it got pretty mixed reviews. It holds a 49% on Rotten Tomatoes and a 53 on Metacritic. Uh, it's the lowest rated film on in the series on both sites by both critical and audience scores. And I feel like the, the 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 reviews kind of feel the same way as we do. Like there's I don't there's no like overly negative reviews and there's even the positive reviews feel like they come with a lot of disclaimers. It's just like this movie is fine. <laughs> like that that's that's just how I feel like trying to get some any kind of, you know, critical or audience or mainly getting any kind of a critical um consensus one thing that is you know pretty universally praised uh, was will Poulter's performance as eustace a lot of people seem to like that um and it's you know, probably telling me because you know he's, he's become a fairly respected young actor in the industry today um as far as awards the only notable one it got was a golden globe nomination for there's a place for us uh which they'll give basically any pop song in any, <laughs> any movie so um for it's kind of like caspian it's hard to quantify the the legacy here just because I'm not sure if there is one. <laughs> like, I guess for me, like, it seems that, you know, whenever I bring it up, maybe maybe it's more remembered only because, you know, whenever you bring it up, people are like, oh, yeah, that was bad. I've seen a lot of negativity with 
weird amounts of like it, it's weird if you were to post this in any film group you're probably gonna see about 90 percent of just like oh yeah that was not good like that was the least of them blah 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 and then like 10 percent of people who for some reason latched onto it and are and are gonna like show up to fight for it um but within like just the general like casual moviegoers if if caspian was forgotten this is like <laughs> feels like somehow even further than forgotten like you almost have to convince someone it exists because i think at least with caspian a lot of people saw it because they loved wardrobe and they were there for that one i know that i like i'm far from the only person who is just at the, at the point of this film's release just so detached from the series that they didn't even bother seeing it and so some people not only have to be, at least in my experience, not only have to be reminded of existence, but like almost convinced, like, no, yeah, they made the third one. I'm like, ah, oh, I've had a couple of people actually be like, no, Caspian didn't do good. I, th- I didn't think they went ahead with the third one. And, and so it just, it feels, I mean, I guess similar to Caspian. And it's just there. It had people who saw it when it came out and it never outside of of this weird minority that's always gonna be present even if slightly um there to fight for it most it's i mean it just came and went and you know it wasn't viewed a lot doubt i i highly doubt it got a bunch of rewatches or dvd sales yeah and and i think within the fandom it seems to be pretty generally disliked you know the previous two films at least made an attempt to capture the thematic core of their books the book fans aside from, i say the there is a, a small but very vocal minority that likes this movie and, and good for them you know i'm glad they found something to enjoy about it but i think generally it's quite disliked in the fandom um i i think one of the things you said is so like with with things like like aslan scraping the scales that's one of the most powerful moments across all of the books and and i think when you don't get that scene right i think that's that's a a scene that people just it's synonymous with the story itself and so a lot of people who just cherish the book and, and its themes and its core message you know they're <laughs> whenever you just treat it so haphazardly it, yeah. it doesn't end up doing well so as far as like the future of this series uh, following this film's other performance i remember there was a lot of talk of maybe going back and doing uh, the magician's nephew next. There's you know possibly silver chair, possibly magician's nephew. Just kind of talk, and then it all just died out for several years until uh, the Mark Johnson company bought the rights, and they got actually got quite a bit of steam going. You know they were going to make the silver chair next. Uh, essentially, do a reboot of the series, like not you know essentially continue chronologically, but not actually connect it. I actively rooted against this idea. Uh-huh. I hate uh, it. They got screenwriter David Mc- Dave McGee came on for a while. Uh, he's the writer behind uh, The Life of Pi, which had me intrigued. And it actually got so far with to where they brought on uh, Joe Johnston of, you know, Captain America, the First Avenger, The Rocketeer, uh, Jurassic Park 3, which we don't talk about. <laughs> mm, we talk about it. That's fine. source. Oh uh, yeah, and he was you know he was brought in as a director. They even like totally you know we're gonna shoot at the end of the year, and then you know it, it went silent for a couple for a couple of months. Actually, probably probably close to a year. And then out of the blue, the news came out. You know, Netflix has the rights to Narnia, and they're gonna make uh, and they're gonna make t- movies and TV series. Uh, and that happened in October last year. Uh, and then it's been absolutely silent since then as well. So I don't I don't know what it's gonna look like. I like I think. Netflix, I have a, I, if they hire good creatives, 
I trust that who, who love the books, I trust that they would give them the freedom to do the weird wackiness that is in the books and not have to try and make it to, you know, 100, 200 million dollar Hollywood movies, which I think was kind of the downfall of this, this of this movie, of the film series. I think like you could get great, great uh, adaptations. You know, obviously, all of this really depends on who they get as the, the showrunner and how much they respect the books. But I, I'm kind of excited. You know, there's a there's a lot of possibility because, you know, Netflix is pretty free with their money. <laughs> Yeah, you know, and and the thing is, I I find it difficult for myself to criticize Netflix because it it kind of seems like their policy is, hey, do you want to make a movie or a show? We'll give you lots of money, and like you know, yeah, we get some we get some bad content every now and then through that through that idea of just handing out crazy amounts of money to anybody who wants to make something. But it it feels like you know they're they're wanting things to be good. They're wanting to put money in the hands of of people who care. You know, like I mean. You're giving. I know you do not look at all favorably on um, David Ayer, uh, but I mean, if it's you know, giving money to people like David Ayer and Duncan Jones and and stuff, you know, I I think they care and they want to put out quality content, and I think they'll, especially after seeing just the entire lack of of embrace and acceptance of you know, especially the last two films, I'm hoping at least that they'll recognize the importance of of intentionally trying to maintain the themes and and capture that that fan base uh so i'm hopeful i'm also just wondering and if we'll ever actually get a comment from that silver chair adaptation if like that's it just kind of died without anybody announcing its death yeah like joe johnson is a concept like he started out as a concept artist in star wars i would have liked to have seen if he if he had been like working making sketches of what his vision for an arnia that would have been cool to see Maybe they'll they'll get them on board for Netflix. Yeah, so right now I'm c- kind of wondering what the heck is going on because it's been so long without news. But I'm you know pretty optimistic, and if nothing else, it's kind of heartwarming to know that Douglas Gresham is always out there, you know, fighting to get his stepfather's uh, books to the screen in a faithful uh, fashion. Yeah, I, I I'm similar, like you know, kind of disconcerted by the amount of of silence we've had. But then I I mean. I'm pretty much having to be reminded now that it was only in October when it was announced. So, you know, it's, it's not like we've gone a year with, with, you know, dead silence. I, I, I expect some sort of news, you know, within the near future. Yeah. All right. So that was the Chronicles of Narnia, the Voyages on Treader. I hope you enjoyed that. And if you did, I cannot like ask you guys to please uh, go over to iTunes and leave us a rating review and, and subscribe. If you want to like us on Facebook, we are there at Franchise Fatigue Podcast. If you want to like, if you want to follow us on Twitter and Instagram, we are there as at Franchised Pod. If you want to find our other episodes, you can go to FranchiseFatiguePodcast.com. And where can people follow you, James? Uh, you can follow me mainly on Letterboxd. I'm there as J.L. Hamry. It's J-L-H-A-M-R-I. Um, and you and I are both admins on a newly renamed group on Facebook called The Outer Rim, a Star Wars group. Um, decide, we're kind of rebranding, trying to be more intentional with content being pushed out there and group involvement. So with And we're, we're currently hosting a, uh, a marathon through the entirety of the series, like all 10 films and all of the canon series. So... Uh, now's a great time to come on board if you uh, if you're feeling up for another rewatch and some discussion with fans. Yeah, and I am also on Letterbox. I'm there as Gabriel Green. I'm on Twitter as at Gabe A Green, and on uh, and I'm on Instagram as Gabe the Great Green. Um, so for next week, uh, we will be wrapping up the Maze Runner series. We talked about the first two uh, Maze Runner films back long time ago on Underrated. So what we're going to do, I think, is we'll, we'll put out either I'm not sure if it'll be either one or two minisodes 
on the uh, the maze runner the scorch trials just kind of bring them up bring them up to date with our feelings on them and give them kind of the uh, the franchise fatigue treatment and then the next week we will uh finish out this series with the death cure i'm really excited to go back to that that's such a fun series to return to for me so i'm looking forward to talk about it since nobody's talking about it <laughs> yeah me too all right uh so until next week we will see you in the sequel i miss them with all my heart as i know all nonians will miss them till the end of time Thank you.